And welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to be along with you today. Uh, the title of today's program is, Is It Time to Abandon Apologetics? Now, I've been working in Catholic apologetics and evangelization for, I don't know, something more than 25 years now. And so I suspect that you can guess that my answer to this rather provocative question is a resounding no. But before you accuse me of stooping to clickbait with this title, I want you to know it's a serious question. Now, uh, there's always been a certain type of Catholic who considers apologetics a bad idea. Those who think that uh, contending for the faith, as St. Jude puts it in his epistle, will turn people off, you know, whether unbelievers or our separated brethren. And they, um, they fear that a Catholics who do apologetics run the risk of being contentious, that they will wind up not so much defenders of the faith, but prideful triumphalists who are spoiling for a fight. Militant Catholics who care more about winning arguments than saving souls. So, in other words, these folks tend to consider apologetics bad for evangelization generally, and ecumenism in particular, because they think that uh, lay apologetics gives Catholicism a black eye. Now, of course, the many apologists would counter by saying what makes a Catholic look bad is not having a ready answer for objections to their faith. And a good apologist understands that apologetics needs to be at the service of evangelization. Now, this particular debate isn't anything new, but what interested me is the number of recent videos and podcasts and such that I have seen from some of the more conservative amongst our separated brethren asking this very question. Is it time to give up on apologetics? And it intrigues me because evangelicals, uh, well, they're evangelical. I, you know, I, and their use of apologetics, I, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the way Catholics and Protestants play, you know, Bible ping pong. But rather that evangelicals have been traditionally strong on the, the fundamental apologetics that answer the basic challenges to Christianity. Uh, was Jesus an historical person? Can you trust the Bible? Did uh, Christ really rise from the dead? That sort of thing. And I wonder why would they talk about abandoning apologetics now when defending the faith, the faith rather, precisely on those fundamental points is clearly needed now more than ever. And working as uh, you know, a lay Catholic evangelist and apologist for a quarter of a century and teaching adult catechesis as a, a lay minister in the Diocese of Orange for the last dozen years, I think gives me some insight into the reason why. And, and first off, because sharing the gospel has always been a challenge. Right? I mean, St. Paul said back in the first century that the gospel was a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Uh, and I think the difference now, the current problem, is that rational arguments and uh, claims about objective truth, uh, just plain common sense, are becoming less and less compelling to people who are awash in, in a whole host of irrationalities, including but not limited to identity politics and transgenderism. I think I may have commented some, maybe a couple of years ago, a college professor 
who was caught in a blatant logical contradiction while she just brushed it aside with the claim that logic is in fact racist because the ancient Greek philosophers were after all a bunch of old white guys, right? The, the um, favorite boogeyman of today's left. And, and that's, that's bad enough, but I don't expect all that much from woke college professors. But when the president of the United States who is himself an old white guy and further one that claims to be a Catholic, when he can state his unequivocal certainty that, quote, a man can menstruate, unquote, we are truly living in the brave new world. And when words can mean anything, they end up meaning nothing. So some folks would say, look, we need to lay off the historical and logical arguments for the faith and just introduce people to the person of Jesus because they argue even the most compelling arguments, even the most logical defenses cannot draw someone's heart to Jesus because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's some merit to this, of course. I mean, we do have to preach Christ. You know, I always tell people that the intellectual linchpin of my conversion was the apostolic succession, but that's not why I converted. I converted because I was granted that priceless gift of faith by God the Holy Spirit. But, and, and this is my point, it was the classic apologetic argument of the historicity of the church that provided the occasion that allowed my heart to be open to the gospel. Now, my wife Betty had been praying for years that if my heart would open up just a crack, that the Holy Spirit would come rushing in. So I will contend to my last breath that apologetics continues to serve a crucial purpose and cannot be abandoned. But that said, we need to understand what apologetics really is and how to employ it fruitfully in the service of evangelization, because apologetics is not an end in itself. It's not an end, but a means. Apologetics is the handmaid of evangelization. And that's no nonsense. Also, um, you know, I've spoken often about stress and the many negative effects that it can have on your emotional, physical, even spiritual health. Uh, I think there's a reason why the scriptures keep repeating our good Lord's promises of peace and admonitions against anxiety. Be not afraid uh, at, at all. And as long as we're on the topic of apologetics and evangelization, there's another issue that I believe poses as great a danger to your well-being as stress, and that is, drumroll please, social rejection. See, handling rejection is difficult to say the least, and it hurts to be rejected at any level. And being rejected uh, can leave emotional scars that, that take a long time to heal. According to Dr. Dr. Nathan DeWall, and this is from the American Psychological Association website. He says, social rejection increases anger, anxiety, depression, jealousy, and sadness. It reduces performance on difficult intellectual tasks and can also contribute to aggression and poor impulse control. Now, it's a staggering list of bad effects. Loneliness and emptiness, right? The feeling that your life is without meaning are among the great psychological motivators, along with guilt and fear, that the unscrupulous use to manipulate the masses. And social rejection causes them all 
The fact that uh, social rejection inhibits your ability to perform complex mental tasks and make you prone to lash out tells you just how much rejection messes with your mind. Hence, social rejection is the single great weapon of so-called cancel culture. And as painful as any social rejection is, being rejected for your faith, I think, is particularly painful. And our Lord Jesus understood this well. And so uh, before he sent out his disciples, he prepared from them for the rejection that they were certain to encounter. So we're going to tie all of that together uh, in a bit with the extraordinary form gospel from last Sunday, which was the famous parable of the sower. But first, um, I had occasion to be out and about in the morning yesterday, and I tuned my car radio to the local Catholic station and heard a little bit of a show that shall remain nameless, uh, uh, but the host's initials were Patrick Madrid. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he was talking about things that people do at Mass and how some, you know, talking about some of the pet peeves that folks have about other people's behavior. And, you know, one thing he talked about was when to stand or sit or kneel. You know, for example, uh, talked about how some folks at the Novus Ordo insist on kneeling for the Lamb of God when the rubrics, I'll put that in quotes, of the new Mass calls for them to kneel after the prayer has been recited. Now, I think it's obvious that the impulse here stems from the fact that it was and is, for that matter, customary to kneel for the Agnus Dei at the traditional Latin Mass which, of course, for many centuries before 1970 was simply called the Mass. Uh, and Mr. Madrid went on about how you're not holier than anybody else for kneeling a half minute sooner, and that that kind of behavior isn't just distracting, but it may well stem from pride and, and not from a genuine desire to give the Lord due reverence, or etc., now, taken all together, I have no problem with his opinion that, you know, these kind of personal deviations in posture can be distracting uh, or disturbing for other folks at Mass. You know, for example, I find it irritating when some Novus Ordo Catholic comes to the traditional Latin Mass and insists on standing at inappropriate times, uh, you know, thinking that he's being more obedient to the the powers that be or, you know, whatever, um, when actually Pope Benedict said you're have to follow the uh, customs of the 62 missile. But all things considered, you know, it's probably best to follow the advice that St. Ambrose gave to St. Augustine on a uh, similar matter, you know, back in the fourth century. He said, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You know, and that's the thing. I, Despite uh, Mr. Madrid's several appeals for worshipers to, quote unquote, follow the rubrics, there are not now, nor have there ever been, any rubrics governing the posture of the people at Mass. Uh, you know, the congregational uh, standing and sitting, all of that, grew organically from uh, the people imitating the acolytes. And when they sat or stood or knelt in choir, right, on the, the benches or seats on either side of the sanctuary. And as I said, it's customary to kneel at the Agnus Dei, the traditional Mass, because the people's posture is governed by custom and not official rubrics. All right. And we're going to talk more about this and also the question they had about whether or not women should cover their heads at Mass. All that and more when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I was talking about Patrick Madrid addressing some questions about assisting at Mass on his show yesterday, and how despite his repeated reference, there are in fact no official rubrics governing the postures uh, of the congregation at Mass. Rather, it is a matter of local custom. But it is well to follow what the other folks are doing. And then he went on to say much the same thing about women covering their heads at Mass that uh, before Vatican II, it was customary to do so, but that it fell out of fashion after Vatican II, even though there was no mandate to stop, you know, for women to stop covering their heads. Uh, however, he warns, you know, a woman without a veil at the traditional Latin mass can expect to get some disapproving looks, which comment I will address in a moment. Now, because I'm on the other side of that coin, um, you see, I remember years ago when my wife's mom passed, Betty found her old chapel veil among her mother's things, and was inspired to start wearing it to Mass. And this is before we started uh, going to the traditional Mass. And she was prepared to have people give her the eye and, and expected them to think that she was trying to be holier than thou or whatever. But the reaction was just the opposite. The comments that she got were overwhelmingly positive. You know, I don't know how many times people went out of their way to say, oh, it's so nice to see you wearing your veil. Or how many times women said, I remember how I used to love my veil as a little girl. I wonder why they stopped doing that. Well, the fact of the matter is they didn't actually uh, not wearing a veil or a hat, not covering uh, a head, the woman's head was both a common liturgical abuse and a violation of canon law for well over a decade. See, the, the, the church's custom of women covering their heads at mass goes all the way back to the first century. I mean, Paul mentions it in first Corinthians 11. And Mr. Madrid was right that there was never any official instruction for women to stop covering their heads. But unlike the postures at Mass, head coverings for women were mandated by canon law under penalty of sin. And after Vatican II, uh, the Boston Globe misreported that women no longer had to cover their heads. And even though they printed a retraction, the original story spread, and it wasn't long after the imposition of the new Mass, that the custom of veiling women covering their heads was pretty much abandoned, at least in the United States. However, it remained a requirement of canon law until 1983. And since canon law remains in effect until it is specifically abrogated, women were technically still required. So, you know, on the other side of this coin, you would have some hardcore traditionalists who would insist that even though it's not even mentioned in the 1983 code, that the canon on women covering their heads in church is technically still in effect today, precisely because it was never specifically abrogated. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but yes, it was. Allow me to quote from the 1983 Code of Canon Law, Canon 6, Paragraph 1. When this code takes forth force, pardon me, rented lips. <laughs> when this code takes force, the following are abrogated. Number one, the Code of Canon Law promulgated in 1917. In other words, the entire 1917 code was specifically abrogated. The end. Now, as for Mr. Madrid's comment about women getting the cold shoulder at the traditional mass for not wearing a veil, I can tell him that at my parish, uh, the number of women who cover their heads versus not was consistently about half and half uh, since they first offered the traditional mass there in 2007. But with the continuing growth of our traditional Latin mass community, I think that women now who do not have their heads covered actually outnumber those who do. And I can assure uh, Patrick Madrid that no one's looking sideways at anyone. And, and that's no nonsense. And, and by the way, 
I should point out that if they did, that would be a kind of social rejection. Ah, yes, the segues are seamless here at No Nonsense Catholic. Um, as I was mentioning before, social rejection has become a major source of all sorts of negative effects, including anxiety and depression and unhappiness, envy, anger, aggression, loss of self-control. And of course, we see all of those effects in full bloom on social media, which is itself a major source of social rejection. In fact, I'd say that social media is ground zero for the, the cancel, counsel. I can't say it. I just can't talk this morning. Uh, social media is ground zero for the cancel culture that pervades our society today. Uh, rejection is difficult and it's painful and it can leave emotional scars that last a long time. Rejection at any level can be difficult to live with, and it's especially hard when we get rejected for sharing the gospel because there are souls at stake. But rejection is a feature of evangelization, and Jesus knew it would be so. And so he prepared his disciples for the rejection that they were about to encounter um, when he considered his words in John 15, 18. He said, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own, but you do not belong to the world because I have chosen you out of the world and therefore the world hates you. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be despised and shunned, that he would be a, a man of sorrows and no stranger to suffering. St. John says in, in his gospel, he came to his own, but those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus himself was rejected. But as he said, quoting the Psalms, the stone that was rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone. So yes, Jesus was rejected, but not all the time. And the apostles were rejected too, but not all the time. Some of the seeds that they planted were receptive to the gospel, and the church spread over all the earth. And as they say, uh, you know, it's an axiom in physics, if something has happened, then it can happen. But it didn't happen overnight. And that's why we should never lose hope. You know, in the words of Tim Allen in Galaxy Quest, never give up, never surrender. Or better yet, as St. Paul said to the Galatians, let us never grow weary in doing what is right. For if we do not give up, we will reap our harvest in due time. But in the meantime, how do we handle rejection when we're rejected for our faith? Especially when we try and share the good news. Uh, and first off, we should remember, I think, that our time on earth is limited. We only have a certain number of days to show our love for Jesus by living our faith. And I suspect that God doesn't want us to spend too much of that precious time, you know, preaching to an audience that isn't receptive to the gospel uh, because he wants us to be productive. You know, it's an old saying that you should fish where the fish are. Unfortunately, the sad fact is that no matter how hard we try, many people are simply not going to be receptive to hearing the good news. Jesus spoke about this in the gospel for the extraordinary form mass of Sexagesima Sunday, which is Luke 8, 4 through 15, the parable of the sower. When a large crowd gathered together as people from every town flocked to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path and was trampled upon, and the birds of the sky ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. And some fell onto good soil, 
and when it grew, it produced a crop of a hundredfold. After saying this, he cried out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him what the parable meant. He said, To you has been granted knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but for others they are made known in parables, so that looking they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. The meaning of the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The seed on the path represents those who hear, but then the devil comes and carries off the word from their hearts so that they may not come to believe and be saved. Those on rock are the ones who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a short time, or a short while, but in time of trial they fall away. That which has fallen among thorns are the ones who have heard, but as they go along they are choked by the concerns and riches and pleasures of life, and they fail to produce mature fruit. But that which is on rich soil are the ones who, when they have heard the word with a good and upright heart, keep it, and yield a harvest through their perseverance. In this parable, Jesus compares evangelization to planting seeds. Jesus spoke this parable to prepare us for the fact that when we share the gospel, rejection is part of the process. Knowing this going in helps us uh, be less likely to become discouraged. As Catholic Christians, we need to persevere through the rejection and continue to plant seeds for God. Well, on the one hand, this parable managed us, uh, helps us to manage our expectations. I remember meeting a woman at a conference one time who told me she'd spent years trying to convert some fallen away family and friends, but with no results. And she was beside herself and, and she wondered what, what was wrong with her. And I told her, you have to let yourself off the hook on this. It, it's not your job to convert anyone. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why in the parable, Jesus doesn't tell us about all the different kinds of sowers, right? the different kinds of, of evangelists or the tactics that they use. On the contrary, he tells us about the different kinds of soil. You notice the ratio between those who receive the gospel is, is you know, one in four. So when the seed that we plant doesn't produce fruit, we shouldn't be disheartened uh, or even surprised. On the other hand, we need to pay attention to the part of the parable that highlights the seeds that fell in the good soil and that did produce fruit. That which is on rich soil are the ones who, when they have heard the word with a good and upright heart, keep it and yield a harvest through their perseverance. Or in Matthew's version, the seed sown in rich soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields a hundred or sixty or thirty times what was sown. The farmer sowed good seed, but not all the seed sprouted. And even the plants that grew had varying yields a hundred or sixty or thirty times what was sown. So don't be discouraged if you don't always see results. Belief doesn't follow some mathematical formula, you know, four to one ratio of seeds planted to seeds sprouted. Rather, it's a miracle. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit to use your words to produce faith in Christ. Like I said before, any kind of social rejection is difficult to live with, especially when we get rejected for sharing the gospel precisely because souls are at stake. But Jesus taught that we are not to become discouraged when our attempts to share the gospel are rejected, because Jesus was rejected, and so were the apostles. Right? And that's the takeaway from this gospel, and that's no nonsense. Sharing the gospel is about sharing the faith. That is the essence of apologetics, to give a reasoned defense of the faith 
St. Peter says in, in, in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to offer an explanation to anyone who asks you to justify the hope that's in you. However, do so with gentleness and respect. I mean, this that's one verse of scripture that every Catholic apologist knows by heart. But it actually begins with these words, revere Christ as Lord in your hearts, and then always be prepared, etc. The indwelling of the Holy Trinity, that is, the state of grace, the acceptance of Christ as Lord, these are absolute requisites for evangelization, because you can't give what you don't have. And at root, it's, it's the truth, or is the truth, that was expressed by St. Paul in the letter to the Hebrews. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So um, in the next segment, I want to talk about faith, because it's the heart of the gospel message. After all, Jesus says, he who does not believe will be condemned. So that and more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. Talking about faith, I said before the break, it's the heart of the gospel message. But there are different kinds of faith. I mean, there is the effective faith that uh, I think that we're all shooting for. Um, there is faith that is effective but still weak. And then there is ineffective faith. And, and I want to talk about all three in the time remaining, uh, starting with the last example, uh, ineffective faith. For example, in Genesis 16, we read about the promise of God that the elderly Abram and Sarai would have a son. But Sarai was barren, and you know, and they were old, and so she gave her servant Hagar to Abram as a substitute wife, so to speak. Uh, and apparently, it was a common practice at that time, because in that ancient culture, a married woman who couldn't have children was uh, shamed by her peers, even encouraged to give a female servant to her husband in order to produce an heir, and the children born to the servant woman would be considered the children of the wife. So, Scripture says that Abram did what Sarai told him to do, okay? as opposed to what God told him to do. I, you know, he, he was acting in line with the custom of the day, but his actions showed a lack of faith that God will fulfill his promise. You know, there's that, you know the old saying, God helps those who help themselves. Well, contrary to popular opinion, that is not a biblical teaching. You can read the scriptures till your eyes bleed, and you're never going to find those words. But after 10 years of waiting, Sarai took matters into her own hands by giving Hagar to Abram, because, like Abram, she had trouble believing that God's promise was directed specifically to her and her husband. And the consequence of that lack of faith was a whole series of problems. We don't have time to go into it all now, but this is what invariably happens when we try to take over for God, when we try to make his promises uh, you know, be, be fulfilled through our own efforts. Uh, that are perhaps not in line with his specific directions. And in this case, time was, was the great test of Abram and Sarai's faith, their willingness to let God work in their lives, you know, on, on his schedule. And sometimes we, we have to have patience, because when we ask God for something and have to wait, then there is this temptation to take matters into our own hands, help him along, 
you know, in, in a way that risks compromising his plan. So first point, ineffective faith, you know, is an attempt uh, or can be an attempt to anticipate God's plan. Or consider the reaction of the people who were following Moses out of Egypt when they reached the Red Sea. This is in Exodus 14. It says, when Pharaoh approached, the children of Israel looked up and saw that the Egyptians were marching after them. The children of Israel were terrified and called upon the Lord. They said to Moses, why did you bring us out into the desert to die? Was it because there were not enough graves in Egypt? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Well, you may recall that the children of Israel were only too happy to set out from Egypt and leave their slavery behind. But when they found themselves at the shore of the Red Sea with 600 Egyptian war chariots bearing down on them, right, the, the armored tanks of their time, they're, they're trapped against the sea, uh, facing a seemingly invincible army sweeping in for the kill, well, they thought for sure they were doomed. Even though 10 times over they had watched God's powerful hand deliver them from Egypt, their response was fear and anger at Moses and despair. So where was their trust in God? In other words, ineffective faith is marked by a lack of trust in God. Of course, the, the Egyptian charioteers were no match for God, who destroyed not only the chariots, but the soldiers and even the horses. But this wasn't the last time the children of Israel would grumble against Moses, which really is grumbling against God. You know, they had learned from repeated, or they had to learn, I should say, from repeated experience that God was able to provide for them. And those examples have been preserved for us in the sacred scriptures so that we can learn to trust him the first time. And by focusing on his faithfulness throughout salvation history, we can face our contemporary crises with confidence, right, rather than with fear and complaining. That's why you say we, we wait for the coming of the Lord with jo joyful hope you know, not fear or despair. Think about the words of John the Baptist from Matthew chapter 3. When he observed many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Produce good fruit as proof of your repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. See, the Baptist called people to do more than go through the motions. He told them to change their behavior. He tells them, prove by the way you live that you've really turned from your sins. Which, which is to say that God looks beyond our words and even our religious observance. He wants our day-to-day -day con conduct to reflect what we say with our lips. And he judges our words by the actions that accompany them or do not accompany them. And that tells us that ineffective faith is marked by an unchanged life. You know, <clears throat> really, God's message hasn't changed since the Old Testament, or even the Garden of Eden. He calls us to be active in our obedience. Remember what our Lord said about what you did or did not do for the least of my brethren you did or did not do for me. St. John the Baptist compared people who claim they believe in God but don't live for God to these unfruitful trees, unproductive trees that are going to be cut down. To be productive for God, we have to obey his teachings and resist temptation and, and, and actively serve and help others and share our faith. He gives us the grace to do that. So the question is, 
what I have to ask myself, how productive am I for God? Because ineffective faith doesn't go beyond words. St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, begins with the words, People should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's talking about himself and Apollos, Timothy. Now it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. It is of no importance to me if I am to be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I personally have nothing on my conscience, but that does not mean that I am innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. You see, Paul had gotten word that although the Corinthians were just starting out in the faith, they had already become arrogant and presumptuous regarding their standing with God. And he reminds them that he's become their father in Christ through the gospel. And everything that he's suffered, and, and in verses 19 and 20, he says, some of you have become arrogant on the assumption that I am not coming to you. However, I will come to you soon if it is the Lord's will, and then I will ascertain the actual power of these arrogant people as opposed to their words. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power. Remember, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom consists of the reign of God in our lives, in the lives of his people, which consists of the new birth in baptism and then a new life in Christ. You know, and that's demonstrated by membership in the church and especially by service to others. And some people talk a lot about the faith, but that's all it is. They might know all the right words to say, but their lives don't reflect God's power. Right? Because their lives haven't changed. Paul says that the kingdom of God is to be lived, not just talked about, not just to be reduced to a, a subject of discussion. There's a big difference between knowing the right words and living them out, you know, between knowing what's right and doing what's right. And you shouldn't be content to have the right answers about Christ. Your life should show that God's power is really working in you. Jesus said your light must shine so that it can be seen by others, and this will enable them to observe your good works and give praise to your Father in heaven. Like St. James said, you show your faith by your works. So sometimes we have faith, but it's ineffective. Other times our faith is weak. You know, you remember uh, Jesus walking on the water. The apostles thought it was a ghost, but Jesus said, have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. The scripture says, Peter called out, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you across the water. And Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water toward Jesus. But when he realized the force of the wind, he became frightened and he began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's Matthew 14. So what do we see here? First off, Peter's not putting Jesus to the test, you know, which is something that we're told not to do. On the contrary, Peter, oh, ye of little faith, you know, and we, we shake our heads at old Peter. Well, he was the only one that got out of the boat. He was the only one to react in faith. You know, maybe his faith was weak, but nobody else stepped out on the water. Now, we know Peter was impulsive, yeah, but this, this impulsive request led him to experience a remarkable demonstration of God's power. You know, in the Bible, the waves and the dark uh, represent forces that are hostile to God and to the faithful. Remember that time that Jesus calmed the storm 
he manifested himself as the master over nature, but symbolically over the power of evil in our lives. And, and to follow him is to escape from the clutches of evil, but, but following him is a dangerous path sometimes, in which we sometimes you know, have to risk everything simply because he says, have courage, it is I. You know, after the, the resurrection and the ascension, every Christian who hears the words, it is I, you know, you, they must hear echoes of the words, I am, that, that decisive self-disclosure of divinity. You know, we hear it first from the burning bush to Moses. Tell them, I am has sent thee. And then from the lips of Christ to the high priest who says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? He says, I am. So in Peter, the first among the apostles, we discern the drama of every believer, that we are strong when we entrust ourselves to the Lord and yet vulnerable and uncertain when we fail to take refuge in him alone. Peter started to sink because he took his eyes off Jesus and focused instead on the wind and the waves. His faith faltered when he realized what he was doing. You know, I don't expect that uh, you or I will ever walk on water, but we certainly walk through difficult and spiritually dangerous situations. And if we focus on the wind and the waves of our circumstances without Focusing on faith in Jesus to help, we will find ourselves sinking too. So to keep your faith when times are tough, you have to focus on his power, the power of Jesus, rather than your own shortcomings. And that's no nonsense. All right, back for round four right after this. Stay with us, and we'll return with lots more no-nonsense Catholics. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. All right, we've uh, looked at Peter walking on the water. We saw that, that his faith faltered, but when it did, he reached out to Christ because he knew that Jesus was the only one that could help. He was afraid, but he still looked to Christ. And that's what we need to do when the troubles around us, we're, we're tempted to doubt his presence or his ability to help. Remember that he's with us. He is the one that can help us. So our, our faith can be weak, and it can falter, but our weak faith can be made strong. Yeah, you remember the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 14 told Jesus that whenever the demon seizes him, it flings him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and so on. And he said, I, I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they were unable to do so. And Jesus said to them in reply, O unbelieving generation, how much longer shall I remain with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And when they brought the boy to him, the spirit saw him and immediately threw the child into convulsions. Right? The demon saw Jesus. And the child fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And the father told Jesus the demon often tried to kill him by throwing him into, into the fire, into water. And he pleaded with him, if it is possible for you to do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if it is possible, if it is possible, all things are possible for one who has faith. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. I believe, Lord, 
help my unbelief. When, when Jesus says that all things are possible for the one who has faith, he doesn't mean that we can automatically obtain everything we want by, you know, through positive thinking, right? Uh, prayer isn't magic. Jesus meant that anything's possible if we believe because nothing is too difficult for God. Now, we cannot have everything we pray for, like, like I say, as if by magic, and often we don't get what we pray for because God knows better than we do what's best for us. That is where faith comes in, that he will be faithful to supply everything we need to serve him and to save our souls. The attitude of trust and, and confidence that the Bible calls belief or faith isn't something we can obtain without help. Faith is a gift from God for which we must always pray because he gives it to us out of his pure goodness. All right, that's the old catechism answer. No matter how much faith we have, we never reach the point of being self-sufficient. You know, faith isn't, isn't stored away like money in the bank. Growing in faith goes hand in hand with growing in holiness. It is a constant process of daily renewing our trust in Jesus. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, I start every morning, I do a morning offering, and then I pray the acts of faith, the act of hope, and the act of love. Because it's, it's, a, it's a constant daily process of renewing our trust in him. And the good news is that our weak faith can become strong with his help. You know, Luke 17, we read how Jesus told the apostles that they had to give, forgive their brother, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. And verse 5 says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And that request was genuine. They, they wanted the faith necessary for such radical forgiveness. And Jesus replied, if you had faith as tiny as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, a mustard seed is small, but, but it's alive and growing. It's almost invisible at first, so tiny, but it will begin to spread, first under the ground and then visibly. And, and like a tiny seed, Jesus is saying a small amount of a genuine faith will take root and grow. Although, you know, each change is going to be gradual, almost imperceptible, it won't be long before faith will have produced major results that can uproot these, you know, competing loyalties, a world, the flesh, and the devil. And so it's not that we need more faith, but to nurture that seed of faith, because that's enough so long as it's alive and growing. So you notice Jesus didn't answer their question directly because the amount of faith is not so important as its authenticity. What is faith? It's a gift. It's a gift that enables us to trust God so completely that we are ready and willing to do his will. Thy will and not mine be done. Faith isn't a show that we put on you know, uh, for other people. And, and the amount of our faith isn't so important as the right kind of faith, right? having faith in God, in his power and, and love and wisdom. You know, it, it's an obedience to God's will. It's readiness to do whatever he calls us to do and, and accept everything that happens to us as coming from the hand of a loving father. This is what he called poverty of spirit, what we call abandonment to divine providence. Effective faith, you know, the kind that uproots trees, the kind that moves mountains, depends entirely upon God. 
And so Jesus tells us, ask anything in my name, which is say, ask anything according to my will, and it will be done for you. In Romans 5, St. Paul says, therefore, now that we have been justified by faith, we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom by faith we have been given access to this grace in which we now live, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we realize that suffering develops perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Such hope will not be doomed to disappointment, because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Through faith, we now have peace with God. That doesn't mean peaceful feelings and calmness and tranquility. Uh, you know, a, a peace with God means that we've been reconciled with him. For a soul to be in the state of grace means that sin is no longer blocking our relationship with God. Peace with God is possible only because the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross merited the graces that are communicated to us through the sacraments. Effective faith there, therefore, uh, rests on what Christ has done for us. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that famous passage about, about love, St. Paul clearly states that the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love are at the heart of the Christian life. Our relationship with God begins with faith. Believe and be baptized, he says. And so we are believe, we believe, and because we believe, we're baptized. And the grace that's communicated to us by this act of faith helps us realize that we're delivered from our past by Christ's sacrifice, from the original sin, from the personal sins, even the guilt you know, um, associated with those sins, not just the guilt, but the punishment. And hope grows as we learn that all God has in mind for us gives us the promise of the future. So he's healed the past and given us a future, and the love of God fills our life and enables us to reach out to others here and now. Faith, hope, and love, past, present, future. In Hebrews 11, Paul defines faith as the assurance of what we hope for and the conviction about things that cannot be seen. So faith, then, is hopeful anticipation. Uh, you remember when you were little and, and Christmas or your birthday was coming? Uh, you know, do you remember the way you felt as the big day approached? You had that mixture of excitement and anxiety. You know, you knew what you wanted and and you were certainly were going to be getting gifts. But, but the inevitability, though, was there that some things would be a surprise. And it was a combination of assurance and anticipation, and and so is faith. It's it's a conviction based on past experience that whatever our expectation, we can anticipate that God has some surprises in store for us. And so I just want to leave you a final note uh, with a passage from a few words from the Imitation of Christ. Not terribly surprising to longtime listeners to this program. What Thomas Akempis told us about faith, you know, I, we began by talking about apologetics and those fundamental apologetics where people use reason to, to you know, defend our faith in God, to give us that, that foundation, uh, that, that foot in the door. 
but it's only an entrance. It, it's, it's the handmaid of evangelization. Thomas Akempis tells us all reason and natural inquiry must follow faith. Go forward, therefore, he says, in simple and unwavering faith and approach this sacrament uh, with humble reverence. You're talking about the Holy Eucharist here. Whatever you are unable to understand, confidently entrust to Almighty God. Human reason is weak and easily deceived, but true faith cannot be deceived. And ultimately, that's where we place our faith. We don't place our faith in in what God can do, but in who God is. That is the heart of the faith, and that is no nonsense. All right, um, before we go, I have good news and bad news. Um, Bad news-ish that the Spiritual Warfare Conference this coming March is in fact sold out. I told you it would be, and now it is. Uh, you can still get access to the recordings. Uh, they will be available on catholicrc.org, the, the Catholic Resource Center site. But <clears throat> even though you may not be able to attend the Spiritual Warfare Conference, we do have another conference coming up this summer, uh, the Virgin Most Powerful Radio Annual Men's Conference. And this year, this coming year, our men's conference is going to feature the Brothers Romero, Jesse and Johnny Romero, together again, June 17th, 2023. And admission is going to be $40 a person. And I want you to save the date. The registration isn't open yet, but I want you to save the date. And I want you to listen for when that registration does open. Because that annual men's conference, it is the most popular annual event after the Spiritual Warfare Conference. But unlike the Spiritual Warfare Conference, we're still holding the men's event at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. So there's considerably less seating, right? Seating's even more limited. So it's going to be a great and and a rare opportunity to experience the power preaching of Jesse and Johnny Romero together again, uh, doing tag team evangelization. Men, it's going to be an inspiring day. It is going to be an empowering day. I really urge you to uh, you know, set that date aside. Remember, it's going to come up on June the 17th. Save the date and, uh, and listen for when registration opens. We will absolutely tell you here. Uh, it'll be on the website as soon as it's, it's up. We'll let you know. Uh, registrate. It's because I want you to be able to register early and not miss out on this year's annual men's conference at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. Okay, that does it for another uh, episode of... No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I want to say thank you for being with us as always. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>